Welcome to the Johns Hopkins University Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the JHU Press Journals Division. Joining us today is the editor of the review journal, The Bulletin of the Center for Children's Books, Deborah Stevenson. Deborah has taught children's literature at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Simmons College, and Indiana University Northwest. She was a senior editor of the Oxford Encyclopedia of Children's Literature and a contributor to the Handbook of Research on Children's and Young Adult Literature. She is a co-editor with Karen Coates and Vivian Yannicka Agbau of the forthcoming Wiley Blackwell Companion to Children's Literature. Her research ranges from the demographics of youth literature to book importation and translation to STEM-based library programming for young people. She joined us today to talk about the Bulletin of the Center for Children's Books, as the journal prepares to celebrate its 75th year of publication. Deborah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Center for Children's Books and the Bulletin? Sure. Um, children's book reviewing is uh, in America, while there was some in the 19th century, the institutional versions that are still with it today um, are very much a 20th century start. So Booklist started in 1905 in the 20s. The Horn Book, which I believe is in Project Muse alongside us, um, began. Um, Kirkus Reviews started in the 30s and we began in 1945 as the service bulletin from the Center for Instructional Materials at the University of Chicago. Um, and it was a little onion skin hand typed thing. And of course we still have that. Um, and then uh, I think people realized that this was actually quite useful. Um, so it expanded. We actually have two volume ones, sort of. We have a volume one and a pre-volume one. So we're calling this the 75th anniversary for convenience sake, um, but you could argue either year. So we just went, yeah, this one will work. Um, and then uh, in 1992, uh, the bulletin left the University of Chicago for the University of Illinois. And then in 2005, our publishing moved from the University of Illinois to Johns Hopkins. In physical locations from the center standpoint, initially the center was um, uh, basically just the physical space and the uh, area where you could examine the collection that came to the bulletin that was submitted to the bulletin. And that um, has been in a couple locations at the University of Chicago. Uh, it was at the main Regenstein Library when I worked there. And then we floated for a few years, which was sort of stressful and traumatic and weird and entertaining. And then finally in 2001, we moved to gorgeous purpose-built space in what we'll call the garden level of the library school. They had a big renovation and it was a big expanded wing. and. Uh, um, I uh, just really love that space. As you mentioned, this is a banner year uh, for the Bulletin, which is now entering its 75th year of publication. And I understand that you're getting ready for your retirement uh, after 20 years serving as editor. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you. It's going to be strange. <laughs> I was going to say, that's, that's a long, that's a, that's a, a, a long time for anyone to stay in one position. Um, my question is, as you look back on your time uh, with the bulletin, are there any particular issues or reviews that stand out as especially memorable to you? Um, when I was thinking about this question, um, there's a, a memorable review versus a memorable book are, mm -hmm. are sort of two different slants, but there tends to be overlap. 
Um, and that uh, as an editor, I tend to be, well, tend to be, I'm tasked with being very involved with the craft of the creation their view. So I have a more vivid memory often of reviews that I was more involved with the craft of, which are often the longer ones. Um, but also I remember a lot of times books, um, uh, reviews where uh, just what either reviews when I wrote them, where I grappled with doing justice to a book I really loved, because those are surprisingly some of the harder reviews because often you just want to jump up and down and go, it's so good, it's so good, it's so good. That's not convincing. <laughs> um, but I um, remembered, for instance, uh, for how much I learned from uh, Betsy Hearn's review of Tom Feeling's The Middle Passage, uh, Roger Sutton's review of The Stinky Cheese Man, which is an amazing review. It's I'll have to so check that one gorgeous. out. Oh, yeah, nice. it's just beautiful. And I keep going, oh, I could do that. Even um, we had a um, reviewer who moved on to other things as they do. Uh, and she reviewed Codename Verity. And I reviewed the sequels and went back to her review in reviewing the sequels. And went, oh my God, this is so good. Um, M. Kirkwood, one of our reviewers, did Justina Ireland's Dread Nation, which is an amazing book. Um, and I read the book after I read her review and I worked with her on the review and went, Oh, did you get that right? Um, uh, Betty Bush is uh, one of our longtime reviewers and she specializes in nonfiction. And her view of Dave, Dave Eggers, This Bridge Will Not Be Gray, is so exquisitely tuned to cover creatively. Reviewing is a creative task as well as an informational task. And I love the combination. And Betty Bush is a creative writer about informational books. And This Bridge Will Not Be Gray is one of her best works in, it's a book that uh, prompts that kind of writing. And she was such a perfect fit for that. So I just went, I went back, I went, oh, that was just, oh. I've worked with such good people. Um, Kate Creeley Gaynor did a gorgeous review of Kristen Kishore's Bitter Blue, the Kristen Kishore Graceling trilogy. Um, and just, it's also, I single out individual reviews, but when you work with people, we, we assign, one of the things that fascinates me about working in this kind of reviewing is that the goal is to have people who are informed write reviews, but also to have people are, who operate as reasonably close proxies for the ultimate readers, who are the kids, not librarians. Um, not that we don't love and respect librarians and we want them to enjoy it too, but ultimately it's for the kids. So we don't give me, uh, I, I don't like, I'm not as likely to like a fantasy um, as we say in our classes where all the characters have names with lots of whys in them. That's not my kind of book. I like books about um, uh, sixth grade girls whose friendship is on the rocks. I mean, I like a lot of kinds of book, but that's my favorite kind of book. Me too. Um, so, so I go at those books because I'm already going, oh, I like it. And we talk about when we're assigning books that the joke is, is like, there's a whale in the book. Does the whale die? Then it goes to Betty. Is the whale <laughs> saved? Then it goes to me. Um, <laughs> so some of what I think of when I think about memorable reviewing is how you, I throw Kate Queeley makes it sound casual. It's not casual. We're careful about our signing, but how Kate Queeley rises to the opportunity of a romance book for young adults in a way that is tender and enthusiastic and knowledgeable and encouraging that 
it is a statement about the value of this genre every time she writes with this kind of care. It is a statement about the value of the readers who like this kind of book. And that is what I really want from a review. I want it to be useful, but I also want it to be a statement about the literature and what it contributes. And I've been very fortunate in working with amazing reviewers who can do just that. Um, from a personal review standpoint, um, it's, as I said, it's often a book that um, I really felt I needed to figure out a way to convey my enthusiasms. So I was thinking Brown Girl Dreaming, Jacqueline Woodson's Brown Girl Dreaming. Um, that one, um, it's just, there's so much in that book. And to compact it, which is of course the challenge of a review. As reviews go, ours are quite short. Um, uh, it's perfectly normal. Um, that one I really felt I got, and I was very pleased. That was one of the early ones. I was like, no, that, that was it. Um, recently, Tang Ha Lai's Butterfly Yellow, which is a book that I just loved, and it keeps coming back to me because it's um, uh, historical fiction uh, about a girl who at 18 comes from Vietnam to find the younger brother who's all that left of her family who mm -hmm. was adopted out of Vietnam. And it is a story of such incredible resilience in the face of just almost unimaginable loss. And 2020 and 2021, obviously that's a book that remains strong in my memory because resilience is something we've all been finding ways to um, find in ourselves and to uh, return to when, when we've slipped a little bit from that or just, you know, when we've had losses. So um, that one, it's also, it's, this is going to sound really corny, but um, I, I get very grateful for having had the chance to talk about an amazing book like that at reasonable length and to say, I did not make this book, but I can make people know more about this book. So that is a, a, hopefully a service that I can provide for librarians. And that means that more kids have seen that book. That's wonderful. And I'm, I'm, I'm not taking notes because I'm just going to furiously write down everything, every book you just said <laughs> later when I'm re listening to this recording again. Uh, as I said, I'm a, I'm a fan and I'm a mother. So all of these suggestions are so wonderful. Um, what would you say sets apart the bulletin from other children's literature journals? Well, they each have their own recognizable identity. Uh, and while that can be a little different under each editor, um, both for us and other people, in general, with the bulletin, um, it is uh, rooted in academics. It has been tied to an education or for most of it's like a library school. Um, so it is both for librarians and affecting the thinking of librarians as they are trained, um, drawing on people who teach librarians to be librarians, drawing on scholars. So it has um, always, uh, uh, it is always informed by scholarship without necessarily being a scholarly work. We are always on the edge and because we've been published for instance by scholarly presses, this has often been a bit of a negotiation to say, yes, but these things that you do for um, at the University of Chicago, there's the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, I think. Um, and we were obviously right next to them alphabetically. So we just, you get, okay, but I know that works for them. That won't work for us. Right. Um, practicing librarians are not atomic scientists. Um, <laughs> but we also have, I think, um, a, a stronger cohesive idea 
identity and uh, character within their viewers because we are very focused on having ongoing um, uh, collaboration within our writers. We had prior to COVID in-person meetings once a week uh, and those were opportunities for sharing. What we do is we bring in the books we're reviewing and we pass them around and we comment on the reviews and comment on the books. And that was great because you get input from people who were seeing books from different aspects. So maybe I knew something about the book and I wrote the review, but the school librarian was like, no, but you don't realize this, if this were fifth grade, that would mean that that's all the people who are teaching this curriculum, which everybody in Illinois is doing. Oh, that's great. That's really useful. Or you'd have somebody go, wait, hang on, what she's saying on page five, I don't think it's true. Um, it just, it, it, it's always been, we've called it the um, peer reviewed reviews, which is probably slightly overstating the formality, but uh, it means that um, people who review for the bulletin have a sense of everyone else who reviews for the bulletin and how they work and what kind of books they review and what they contribute. Uh, we've gone to Zoom meetings. And while because of the nature of both Zoom meetings and the nature of books, we don't share the books around in the same way, but we do still share the reviews. Um, and it means also we're creating collaborative relationships that often spin off into other tasks. We have people who've gone and created conferences and worked together on grants and created events and stuff like that. Um, I, I work together on books, things. Um, it's, it's forging all kinds of professional connections, professional identity, um, as, as well as, um, uh, as well as a review corpus, we'll go with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that makes sense. Cause I think, I mean, for someone who, like you said, is coming from a completely different, you know, academic area, they might not, you know, they might just assume it's scholarly essays about children's literature. And so I think it's, it's important for our listeners to know the difference and that this, you know, has, it really is a, a kind of a different not necessarily apples and oranges, but a different yeah. kind of apple. <laughs> I think it's worth thinking also about um, just the kind of numbers we're talking about here, mm -hmm. um, because um, we review our, our, our main customers in reviewing are people who are developing a collection. We talk about it as a collection development tool. Mm -hmm. So this is not a New York Times review where Michiko Kakatani is writing for you, whether you might like this book. We are writing for whether a librarian who's buying 500 books this year might want to include this book. Mm -hmm. um, that is a different approach. Um, it's also, we deal in large numbers. We get roughly 500 reviewable titles per year, which wow. in an ordinary year, the amount of actual physical materials we handle is, is sort of staggering, um, uh, which we found when we tried to shove it behind a sofa. Um, <laughs> it's uh, because we get um, pre-publication physical galleys, again, mm -hmm. we're talking 2019 at this point, um, of most of those and often dupes. So we're getting, we talk about getting, plus we get reprints. In. So we get over 10,000 individual pieces of a book one way or another a year. And of those 5,000, um, all, the, all, all the ones that are eligible review, we look at. We look wow. at to assign. We do not assign all of them. We um, assign probably about 1,200, 1,500 out of that. And then we expect reviewers to review a portion of what they reviewed and kick back the books that when they've looked at them more carefully say, 
uh, we get a lot of books like that. This isn't anything special. Or I really, really, really hated this. Could somebody else do that? Which is something we regularly allow for. We don't want, if you hate it, you know, if if you can say I hate it and I should be the one to say why it's bad, that's another argument. But mm. um, so ultimately we end up reviewing approximately 900 books a year. Wow. Um, the reviews are between 150 and 300 words. And the longer ones um, are, are big picture based on the cover each year between 500 and 700. Um, I did some uh, career math uh, earlier this year when I was talking to Sarah Schwebel, the director of the CCB. And in January, it was, uh, I decided it was uh, 6,220 reviews to date. Um, which would be 415 linear feet of books. So there's there's a quantity thing going on here. Are are there any changes or trends in children's literature that you see happening that are um, that you would say are, are really positive that are really bringing you hope and excitement? Uh, uh, diversity is obviously the big topic, um, and. <laughs> It is so much better and the handling is so much better. It's also kind of a comparison gainer because it's been so terrible. Um, so it needs to be so much better. Uh, so I, I like the directions that we are aiming. Um, it's, it's kind of like vaccination rights. It's a good direction. It needs to be better. <laughs> um, I think that um, underlying it, what I'm hoping for and what I'm seeing evidence of is a shift between um, from adulation to the past, which sounds slightly more pejorative than I mean it to be, but I'll leave it there, um, towards the importance of the future. It is interesting, children's literature, one of the reasons I got into it is because it's fascinating. And it is on the one hand, um, geared for the, the people who are going to be most in touch with the future. And yet it is one of the most past looking literatures, um, especially because so many authors are writing for their own imagined childhood. That's especially true of newer authors. So for a while there was, um, uh, you still see the occasional one, but there was this whole genre of books. It wasn't an official genre, but where it seemed to be set in a contemporary time, but nobody had computers or cell phones. Mm. And you'd be like, this feels like a normal reality to the person writing it because it's been a good portion of their life. Ah. It's not a normal reality for a 10 year old kid reading it. And this is the friendly argument we get into what's historical fiction. And I stand for historical fiction is any fiction that is set earlier than the birth of the kids the age who are reading it. And I don't mean things become historical fiction. I mean, I, I have a um, book this week that's set in 1999. I'm calling it historical fiction. <laughs> Fight me if you disagree. I'm happy to ha get into that. It's just, I, I want the frame of the child who's reading it. Um, um, it, it, we've, we're just coming off of the Dr. Seuss kerfuffle. And the thing is, people upset about that publishing focus aren't generally people in the field. People in the field are more inclined to say there have been, I, I think I did a real back of the envelope calculation, approximately 60 million books since Dr. Seuss published If I Ran the Zoo. I think we can find better books. I think it's just, it's, we can get into the political issues, but also it ties to people's uh, 
people's childhoods and when I say people I mean grown-up people and I mean sometimes people who have grown up a long time ago and I see this when I see um uh non-professional forums um they're like hey does I does anybody have a book for my five-year-old grandchild and people are like treasure island and I'm like no they're one they're five and two do you know how many good books there are for five-year-olds that have come out in the last 10 years even um so uh diversity is getting better and that's a um challengeable term in its own right which i think is a good thing um i think we're also getting accustomed to the notion of change being a constant which i think is important when you're always writing for new people and those new people are always going to have new and different needs um that also means that um awareness of representation is really i think has permeated the field and i think that's really good because speaking as a um a lovely well-meaning white person um i need checks on myself and policies where i'm like let me make sure that i am giving people that i am making space for different kinds of voices is really important. This is something even in reviewers, since we're focused in Champagne, um, that's been harder to draw on. So we've gone back and forth on that, on, on representation reviewers. We've had some um, really diverse groups of reviewers. It's ebb and flow. And I think at this point, the um, uh, remote function, if we had any money to hire, which of course we don't right now because no one has any money under COVID, um, that would allow us, I think, to extend further in a way that would probably keep further. But um, the um, reckoning with the sins of the past, I would say also, um, diversity is one of those things that part of why it's a contested phrase is that it sounds so nice and it's also really very sort of hegemonically centered. It's like, not like me all the time. It's like, okay, but it's still, you are still right in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I even, there's a lot of fantasy about um, slavery and African roots and um, uh, magic realism dealing with uh, immigration and Latino oppression. Um, and of course there's been historical fiction dealing with this and nonfiction dealing with this. So uh, there, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's books about how people are processing all these um, oppressive genocidal aspects of the past, as well as those aspects of the present. Um, it's still a, a, a literature, I would like to see, have more non-happy endings. It's mm. a literature that really... Um, you know, people feel bad and get stuck and everybody dies in the end. Yay. Um, but it doesn't have to be every book. Uh, I, I, I really, we we're, we tend to be bright sided in children's literature. And I don't think we need to turn it into gloom fest, but um, there was a picture book I liked a few years ago. And, you know, there are many good books that have a really resolute ending. I'm not saying nothing should, but we get a lot of books about death for kids that are like, oh, um, Fido the Golden Retriever is getting gray and he's not moving so fast. And now he's in his basket and he won't get up again. And Kylie is sad. And then they go out and there's a butterfly. And trust me, you do see the butterfly a lot. 
<laughs> those books absolutely have a purpose. Uh, so there was a book a couple of years ago called Death is Stupid. Uh, <laughs> and it was a nonfiction book for kids about death. I think oh it my had goodness. Sort of a, an, a, I just loved it. It's like, it's, and it was also about all the things adults tell you that the kid's like, that's moronic. Like, oh, she's in a better place. Really? She didn't want to stay with me? Thanks. <laughs> that was helpful. Right. So I really enjoy a book like that. Um, I, it's, it's, I'm underselling how children's literature has gotten more um truthful about like adult frailties and things like that over the years um there's a lot more candor about ways in which many adults suck and some adults um are just actively toxic and dangerous to their children and other people um so uh there there has definitely been movement on that that i greatly appreciate but i would like there's a, a scholar and helmatos who talks about um, the uh, validity, for instance, of um, sadness in narratives about um, LGBTQ teens. And he says, because if they're relentlessly happy, they're not reflecting our reality. And I think that's an important point. I think there's value, we've talked about this in-house too, about there's, there's the, the, the tragic queer trope you have. Um, oh, they're going to die in a car wreck and they have sad eyes as a, a a former director of the CCB who did a lot of uh, is one of the leading scholars of LGBTQ literature for kids said yeah they they would have sad eyes um, but there's also that that tension between saying we want to offer kids hope but we want to recognize what what they're actually experiencing mm -hmm. um, on uh, another note I'd say certainly the rise of graphic novels um, which has been a wonderful thing. Um, it's interesting because I'm very text-based, so it takes me much longer to read a graphic novel. Um, but it's so nice to have, um, you know, we know this, right? People, including children, experience literature, experience everything in different ways. Not everybody comes in with the same valence. That's why, for instance, we keep pushing nonfiction because a lot of times people talk about children's literature and like, well, that can't be nonfiction. Yes, yes, it can. Many children love to read nonfiction and there's amazing nonfiction. Mm -hmm. um, also a thing that's happening is you're starting to see both the reflection of social media as a norm and thematic force and the interrogation of social media. Oh, nice. Um, so that's um, uh, something I find really fascinating is you have, um, uh, especially for teenagers, mm -hmm. um, some exploration of the ways social media um, can batter young people mm -hmm. that you take the we know that social media can um distill some of the worst characteristics of humanity and did we think 16 year olds were going to be immune to that no of course not so basically ways in which social media can make a kid's life hell and just in small ways in the way anything in um that kind of close community um will hit and everybody picks up and runs with it um so I, I'm, I'm really appreciating seeing that because I think that's a challenging negotiation for everybody in 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm all for anything in literature that can give young people some uh, assistance, some perspective, um, some support in dealing with that.
um, how did you end up um, studying children's literature? What was your sort of academic journey to get to where you are now? My note on that is I still wonder about that sometimes. <laughs> we all do, <laughs> I really. knew I wanted to study children's literature after undergraduate. And for a variety of reasons, I ended up at the University of Chicago in the English department where they didn't really do that. Um, it, children's literature scholarship um, still treats itself a bit as a newbie. It's interesting in that um, one of the uh, characteristics of a lot of children's literature scholarship is, is defensiveness about doing children's literature scholarship <laughs> in a way that was true in a lot of feminist criticism in like the 70s and 80s. Um, so I trotted through my little University of Chicago English program, but in the library school was one of the great children's literature scholars of the time, Betsy Hearn. So I sat in on Betsy's classes and then started working at the Bulletin as a student. Um, because it, Betsy was somebody who I was like, yeah, and you, do you want this job? And I was like, uh, well, I have to finish this other job. So like, yeah, no, no, we'll work it out. Come on. <laughs> um, and I came and went, this is amazing. Um, and I started writing reviews and went, this is amazing. And then I just kind of stayed when the bulletin moved to the University of Illinois. Um, Betsy became a professor at the University of Illinois after the library school at the University of Chicago closed. And I was like, sure, I can move to Champaign. Why not? And somewhere in there, I finished my PhD, which is on children's literature. And Betsy was uh, my main supervisor um, and have been doing um, uh, research and scholarship as well. Um, but the consistent pulse of reviewing has been running through there the entire time. So it was one of those jobs where I would have aspired to it if I knew it existed earlier on. Um, so it's just, I mean, it's just immense good fortune. Um, so I, every now and then, how do I plan to do this job? It's like, I have no idea. So my last question, I'll just sort of combine my last two questions into one, because you, you've sort of touched on this, the last one a couple of times, but what were your favorite books when you were a kid and what are some of your favorite books right now? Yeah. And I'm separating those out because they're okay. very different. Um, okay. I was a big time horse book reader as a kid. Um, so I have very strong opinions about horse books, despite the fact that genre is nowhere what it was, but I also... I, there's some interesting scholarship on the importance of horse books as books for young girls in a time before Title IX. And this was one of the few really physical sports where one, they could compete um, on the same playing field, literally as men. Mm. Um, and also it just was an acceptable way to be um, really uh, physically active and really powerful. Mm. Um, plus they're furry and they're fun. Um, I also really liked uh, fantasies and witty fantasies, um, um, especially domestic fantasy. Like I was in, we had an Edward Eager book at home and I went and found the rest of the Edward Eager books. Um, but I also overdid, um, 
the uh, Celtic fantasies at one point and then couldn't read anymore. Same as like once um, my dad is Greek and his family sent us baklava once and I ate too much baklava and now can't look at it. So that's where I am with a lot of fantasy. <laughs> fantasy baklava. They're just, yeah, yeah. exactly. You don't They're want too same. much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody knows they're the same. Um, favorite children's books now um it does change every week to some extent because sure. i've been so lucky to read so many amazing books brown girl dreaming is obviously up there i've already mentioned it um from last year we i was just talking to colleagues about um how we cry all the time over books um uh, meg medina's evelyn del rey is moving away one of my favorites of last year and when i was talking about books being bright-sided that's a really good example of how you can have just this beautiful, brilliant book and that things are okay, but it's really um, super respectful of, I, I'm, I'm such an advocate for the crucialness of children's friendships, mm-hmm. of volitional relationships that are every bit as important for them as marriages for adults. That's why when I talk about, ooh, the friendship rift in sixth grade, that is the divorce novel for preteens. Um, and Evelyn Del Rey's Moving Array is just this gorgeous picture book about, and I might cry a little and just we'll carry on, That's okay. um, about the, the narrator whose best friend who lives in the apartment next door and their apartment's very similar, um, is there, Evelyn is moving away. And they're going through what they do every day together. She goes, we play like this all the time. Here's, we stop at this apartment and they always give us cookies, da, 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 da. But things are getting packed in boxes all around them. Mm-hmm. And then Evelyn gets into the car and they're looking at each other and they're crying. And, you know, the parents are like, oh, we'll see each other. And they're like, sure we will. But the fact is, this is a change. Even if they see each other, it's not the same as having your friend next door. And they know that, and the book knows that. And I love that the book knows that. Um, we, we've, you know, we have nice books about friends moving away, and they're good, too. They're often really good. But this one, I just feel really got the kind of loss that is a real loss. Mm-hmm. Um, one, there's, there's a series, there's a British author called Hilary McKay, who I just adore. And she's written some of the funniest books ever, The Exiles, um, which are about a group of four sisters, uh, which I called the March Sisters from Hell at one point. But she also has a sequence of books about the Casson family. And it's treating um, people of different age than the family. There's an older sister, an older brother, uh, one younger sister, two younger sisters, and they're all named after paints excuse me, and Permanent Rose is the youngest sister. And the Permanent Rose book is one of the most exquisite, child-friendly explorations of when a child's understanding of their family shifts. Mm-hmm. Permanent Rose is dealing with loss of all, she just adores her brother's friend, Tom, who's moved away. And it's when she finally realizes um, and I'm so not doing this book justice. It, it, the way in a family things don't often get stated in oftentimes in novels, things are made more explicit than they are in real life because mm. that's something narrative requires. This is a book that's like, nope, this is not a family that says your daddy lives in London now. So we're not going to do that. Daddy's just going to kind of be in London. He's going to come back. And it's Rose dealing with loss she doesn't realize she's undergoing before mm. she finally 
clicks it together consciously um, on a more, um, what adjective do I even want? On a more harrowing note, uh, Anne Fine, also very funny British author, author of um, uh, Alias Madame Doubtfire, the source book for Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, um, nice. Has, yeah, this is not a funny book. And it is still the best book I've seen for what do you do about a young kid who is clearly in serious trouble in a way that is going to lead to stuff down the line, but mm. that also how involved you get and it's called the tulip touch and tulip is the friend of the narrator and the narrator lives with her parents her parents run this hotel and tulip is just besotted with his golden life in this hotel and the hints of what tulip's life are are just horrific and fine as a master so all you get are these hints and there is involvement from child services but there's clearly not successful like extrication or anything and there's this tulip does these just she goes up to the house of this um woman whose son drowned and like tells taunts her with her son and she's like 11 tulip is it's really something is really wrong with this child mm -hmm. and the narrator's parents are trying to both keep their daughter safe and i keep talking about the parents because it's i do tend to go what do you do as a grown-up but of course the um narrator she's besotted with her friend and her parents like on the one hand we're gonna take tulip in on the other hand uh we are a little worried about you spending time with her and the teachers are intervening with things like that and there's a great sentence from um uh her mother who who says something like so to i think it's child services you want to know if tulip is bad or if she's sick and like we we don't know we just know we can't fix her and she's going to hurt our daughter um but there's also just the tragedy of this kid um so it is i think it's a very hard read but it's also very accessible and it's also I, I, I mean, we had a lovely little one this week. Um, uh, this one was a picture book um, and it's called Jenny May is Sad. And it's not getting into the details, but it's clear something's going on at Jenny May's house. And it's pretty clear from the way the narrator and the girl's teacher is dealing with it. This is a known thing. So like the narrator's parents have already talked to her about Jenny May. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, what do you do? when you're a kid and your friend is in deeper than you can do anything for. And this is an experience. We have lots of books legitimately that do a great job of focusing on the kid who is in the mire. But what do you do when you're the kid next to them? What do you do when you love them, when you, you don't want to go down with them, but you don't necessarily even see that's a problem. Um, so I, I think the, the Tulip Touch was just an amazing book for that. That sounds um, incredible. Yeah, I'm gonna like I, now my my brain is spinning with all of the books I'm gonna read. You, if nothing else, I appreciate this conversation because you have set me up for the reading for the next yeah. like three to six months. I'm struck by so many things that you said talking about different titles um, just today about how some of the best stuff that's happening and some of the books you've recommended they all kind of have a way of showing showing how two things can be simultaneously true. 
you know what I mean? How like things yeah. can be, t- things can be terrible. Your friend moves away. Mm-hmm. You're still going to probably be, be, you know, it's like, it's kind of, um, just the, the way life is. And I think with children's literature, like you said, a lot of times things in the past, things have been so everything's fine at the end. Like you said, happy ending, everything's tied up in a bow. Um, but I'm, I'm really, I'm really struck by how a lot of these titles that, um, have impressed you so much, um, seem to be doing that, um, successfully kind of showing that you can hold two, you know, differing thoughts in your heart or in your head at the same time. And that's, that's totally possible. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Um, I like that idea. I'm going to need to think about it a little more, but I think you're onto something. Let me just say thank you so much. This has been such a delightful conversation. Um, if, like I said, you've given me so much good reading for the next few weeks. So I just, I, and congratulations on both your retirement and, bo- and the Bulletin 75 years. I just um, can't tell you enough how much we appreciate everything you do. Thank you. Um, it was delightful to talk about. And once you start me listing books, I just it, it still have so many books that I feel wistful. And say, but, but wait, I didn't, I didn't mention these. Um, <laughs> and it's to have a job where you get to romp in these creative realms and these amazing creative realms where I'm thinking of uh, Stephen Sondheim, Sunday in the Park with George, look, I made a hat. People make hats all the time. And I get to see those hats and wear those hats and go, you, you did make a hat. You made an amazing hat. Let me go tell people about this amazing hat and why they need this hat. That's wonderful. And the joy, the joy and passion you have for your work is so obvious, both in the bulletin itself and, and just talking to you today. So just thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. This podcast is a production of Johns Hopkins University Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals.